I Speak the System, Chapter 19, by Jimmy Cliché, Rapture. There was a lot of talk within my friend group about the rapture at the end of October. Some prophet predicted the world would end on October 28, 1992, and people were posting warning signs all over town. We were interested in the whole idea of it. One hippie artist girl cut out barcodes from the coupon section of the paper and was selling them for a dollar apiece, saying, Save your soul from the rapture. I bought one not actually believing that the world would end or that a barcode would save me if it did, but I wanted a souvenir of the event. I wrote a poem about it, too. It ended with the line, No more stupid school, no more stupid groups of friends. Who cares if you're cool when the world ends? On Halloween, I went to a haunted house in the auditorium and then trick-or-treating dressed in all black with a crew of kids Noel and Cassie knew from band. I wished I was in band since so many of my friends were. I sometimes sat at the band table at lunch where I usually talked with a junior named Agnes who was also in youth group and she was the star of the track team, an honor student, extremely Irish Catholic, and had been a Girl Scout up until that year. She was sort of an unusual person for me, but I loved her. She had a crush on a boy her name her age she had a crush on a boy her age named Adam who was in the brain and went to an alternative school. I kind of liked Adam too, but I was still planning to marry Ed. A bunch of us gathered at Noel's house on Halloween. When we were done trick or treating for the night, we were covered in shaving cream, and Noel and Cassie got the idea to give me a haircut, shaving the underside of my head so that if I wore my hair up in a ponytail, people could see it shaved underneath. It came out awesome, and I was one of the only people at school with that haircut, other than other than a senior artist girl who was a friend of Fred's and a boy I knew from AA. When I was suicidal, Fred made plans to babysit me or have other people babysit me. I loved the concept. One time she sent over my next-door neighbor, the older brother of the kid I was friends with when I first moved in. He'd been a bully to me most of my life, but had been become nice. He was still friends with Spud, who was in youth group, although Spud was Wiccan and read tarot cards. Spud got me interested in that stuff again. I felt like I had powers ever since I was a kid. I often skipped classes to go to the library and hang out with the juniors and seniors who had free periods, something only upperclassmen were supposed to have. I'd usually hang out with Spud and a beautiful girl named Eve Curtis, who I had a major crush on, but I didn't realize it. Years later, I'd find out she was bisexual and may have actually been into me as well. That turned out to be the case with Fred, too. Apparently, Fred actually recognized us flirting at the time, but she knew I hadn't realized I was queer yet, and she was several years older than me, and technically an adult. I was barely 14 when we met, so she never said anything about our chemistry or acted on it. I may not have known I had a crush on her at the time, but once I realized I was attracted to women, one of my first love poems was about her. I loved Eve Curtis, too, though. She had long hair that was all one length, wore multi, wore long multicolored hippie skirts with Grateful Dead, Almond Brothers, or Fish t-shirts, and always had a plaid flannel around her waist with Birkenstocks on her feet. Her smile made me melt. At the time, I was just grateful that these older kids chose me as a friend over all the other kids my age who bullied me. 
I loved hanging out with Spud and Eve Curtis at the library. I'd hang out there talking to them and writing poems and spells in my notebooks. When they weren't around, I'd disappear into the poetry section in the back, sitting on the floor of the library, reading or writing my own poems. I think it may have been Spanish class that I was skipping to see Spud and Eve. Honestly, I farted one day in Spanish class and just never went back after that. It was the end of my foreign language education, but I also stopped going to algebra early on too because of bad vibes with my teacher who was fired many years later for sexual harassment, no surprise. I also stopped going to social studies after someone, not me, tried to burn the school down and managed to burn down my social studies room. They rebuilt and repainted it in awful blue, bright blue color and it smelled weird in there and just left me feeling oddly triggered and irritated. So I stopped going to that class and gym. Fuck gym. So I was only going to English, science, study hall, and any electives I took like art. I also took decisions class, which was only one semester. All incoming freshmen had to take it. It was basically a sex education, drug education class in which I knew far too much already and it was obvious. That class was my first educate was my first semester and it was located in Echo Hall, which was a hallway in the school that had an echo. There was a girl in my class who was in my social studies class in eighth grade, and since she was kind of a friend and relatively new to our town from Russia, I'd make her laugh by yelling sheep in Echo Hall after class, loud enough to make a huge echo. I played Alice in Go Ask Alice, which was the title character, although not the lead. We actually wrote the part of Alice into the play and turned it into a bit of a unique experience. I had a scene where I was alone on a street corner, all junked out while White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane played, and then a scene at the end, which was part of the overdose ending. Fred was the star who we called Sarah, but in the book is anonymous. When Sarah overdoses at the end of the play, after a bad trip, a straight-edge punk version of White Rabbit by the Boston band Slapshot would start playing, and a freshman boy named Ash would come out in a tuxedo, pull out a podium, and read the Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland. Then me and a girl wearing overalls and pigtails would come out and start singing Ring Around the Rosie in whiny voices, and then when we all fall down, when we all fell down, the music would end with the play. Fred created and choreographed a whole brilliant scene, which was not included in the script. I was doing a lot with the drama club as well as the magazine, where I met another senior girl named Mallory, who was short, shy, and cute. She was finally ready to let out her wild side, but she was behind all the other seniors in that way, so she felt comfortable talking to me about it. I could sometimes still get alcohol from Doyon's older sister, who'd drive over to the playground behind the school on Wednesday nights after our magazine meeting and open up her trunk. We'd give her the money and get our bottles of peppermint schnapps. Mallory knew a senior who could get her pot, as we called it then, and we went into the woods and shared a joint for the first time. I went home, lit a candle and some incense, and put the Moody Blues question of balance on my record player. I was deep in cosmic thought, loving every second of it. After all those years of wanting to try such a popular drug, I finally got a taste of it. 
and I totally understood the calling, not to mention that it tasted and smelled a million times better than cigarettes. Mallory and I both did the magazine, the pro-choice committee, and AIDS awareness. We volunteered to make signs advertising the winter literary coffee house put on by the magazine. We made posters after school with badly drawn pictures of steaming hot cups of coffee in simple houses. I wrote quotes or poems on them all underneath the main info and hung them all over school. The coffee house was the first time I ever got to read my poems to a crowd, and I was pleasantly surprised by how much people seemed to genuinely enjoy them. Then I received mail in homeroom one morning, informing me that three of my poems had been accepted to the school magazine. I was the first freshman to ever get published in the school literary magazine, along with my friend from Russia who had a short story published. I was also one of the only people to ever have more than one or two pieces in a single edition of the magazine. I was so proud of myself for that, and yet when I told my parents about it and showed them the magazine that I still have to this day, they got mad at me. They said, why do you always do things like this? You make us look like bad parents. Why would you write these sad poems for the whole school to see? I was shattered. I just wanted them to be proud of me for once. They were there for me in other moments, of course, but moments like this stick out in my mind as to what was causing a lot of my hopeless depression. For the winter holidays, they held a semi-formal dance. I lied to Ed and told him I was going to be in the hospital during that time. I'd never been to a psych ward, but was thinking I needed to go. I honestly don't remember why I didn't just invite Ed to the dance, other than the fact that he didn't know anyone at my school. I ended up asking a nerdy junior from band who was ecstatic by my invitation, and he came with me and a few of my friends, which included Mindy, who was no longer living in our town, but was still dating the same kid from eighth grade. So she attended our semi-formal. We went out to dinner for Chinese food, and I think I may have been drinking, but I forget. It was the last time I ever wore a dress. It triggered me. I wore long skirts on a few more occasions, always with short skirts, always with shorts underneath, because I'd been wearing spandex shorts under my skirts and dresses since seventh grade. It felt safer that way. For New Year's Eve, I went with Agnes, her younger brother, and a whole group of kids on the train to Boston for the first night festival of 1993. My ex-boyfriend Brian was there, and I was worried things would be bad between us, but he was dating Esther, who I'd grown apart from, and that actually made me happy to see them together. Ed came to visit me a few times during winter vacation, but I didn't see him much. By Valentine's Day, I was struggling to write a good love poem for him because I just didn't feel like we had much spark left between us. The distance was an issue. The high school held a Valentine's dance, and a few of the local bands played, including one called Divided State that three of the male members of the brain were in. The other male member was Spud, and he asked Noel to the winter semi-formal, so they began dating. Noel even got to play kazoo and cowbell for their band. I not only wanted desperately to be an official brain member again, but I was also falling for Adam. Something about him just spoke to my soul. I knew, Adna I knew Agnes liked him, but she wasn't moving in on him. That night for the Valentine's dance, he was wearing a sticker that said, I need a six. 
In the brain, the boys were all odd numbers, and Adam was a five. So I knew, especially at a Valentine's dance, what I need a six meant. And I went up to him between songs he was playing to tell him, I want to be a six. He had a shocked yet excited look on his face, but the dance got busy. He had a show to put on, but he wrote me a letter in crayon a couple days later, telling me that he liked me. The letter was several pages long, and I responded to him in a letter I also wrote in crayon while babysitting my cousin Kenny. I was getting an education on Sid Barrett and old-school Pink Floyd from my uncle, who was excited to learn I was a Pink Floyd fan. Adam was a huge Floyd fan, too. Just like that, we were together as a couple, although it took a few more weeks before I officially broke up with Ed. I fell in love with Adam right away, and we were together all the time, to the point where my parents were extra weary of him, even though they did like him. They just knew that if things went wrong, which they probably would with my record, that the heartbreak would kill me. They knew he'd, he made me happy, and they were happy to have that for the time being. Something I should point out about my parents, since I often talk about what they've done to hurt me as a sensitive kid, is that looking back on it now, my parents mostly just wanted me to be happy, which is something I appreciate more now that I actually am happy in general. But when I wasn't happy, it felt like everything I did was a disappointment, and that of course only made me feel worse. They didn't know how to deal with a kid like me. I probably wasn't in the handbook for parental expectations. They did want me to be happy, and they were happy when I was happy, usually. They were, there were sometimes the sense that they were waiting for things to crash again, so even the happy times would feel tainted by that feeling. But they did like Adam. They just didn't want to like him in case they had to hate him later. The worst things Adam did was swear a little bit, just a normal healthy amount, and stole street signs, but never stop signs or anything that could endanger anyone, just street names usually, and often as gifts for people. Once I became a six, he stole me a metal six off a telephone pole, and he stole me two James Road signs, because he'd given me the name Jimmy as my brain name after Jimi Hendrix, specifically due to the line from the song Fire that said, Move over, Rover, let Jimmy take over. I sort of took over everything I got involved in. I was a natural leader. Noelle's brain name was Cheshire, after the Cheshire cat, because of her big, beautiful smile. Fred was named Fred, after her Fred Flintstone boxers. I helped come up with a few names for other people, too. I I named Monty and Little Bird. There's so many random things I could go into about the brain, honestly. The brain deserves its own separate book. It was based on art and music theory pattern. It was based on art and music theory, patterns, colors, and numbers, and we all had inside jokes and weird shit we did. I was a green six. Green meant hysterical, and six was tablature, which is basically a word for something that looks like a music staff but has six lines instead of five to show the strings on the guitar. Every guitar player's magazine has them. It's supposed to simplify things and make it easier to learn a song. The cool thing about it was that in the the cool thing about it was that the way in which I've always been a leader has been the fact that I can explain things in a simple way once I understand them myself, and I help others so they can more easily understand and learn. To be a green six in the brain was a great metaphorical thing. 
Adam was a yellow five. Kenneth was a red one, but he didn't have a two. Monty was a brown three, but didn't have a four until he ended up dating Eve Curtis. We both had a crush on her. Spud was a blue seven, and Noel was a purple zero. Why not eight? Because eight was marriage, and nine was kids, income tax, and death. We eventually added some negative numbers, too. Fred didn't have a number in the brain, but she was in the brain by association, as was Bootsy, another junior we all hung out with. We used to drive around in Kenneth's little red car all the time with the busted tape player and sometimes no working lights. He had a fake corpse in his trunk that he left over from the Halloween haunted house where he did the gruesome stage makeup. Whenever we were driving around and the song Jeremy came on the radio, we'd all yell, it's a good night to die. And we'd drive over to a little cemetery near the lake with a kid named, where a kid named Jeremy was buried. Thinking back on the things we did is funny. I felt like I was so grown up then, a freshman hanging out with juniors and seniors and sometimes even college kids, yet we were clearly still a bunch of kids looking for fun. Luckily, none of them were looking for trouble. Most of them didn't even drink or do drugs. We went to a local music... We went to local music shows together all the time because most of the brain was made up of musicians other than Spud and me. The brain hung out together almost like a gang of good kids or sometimes even described more as a cult. But the pookie heads were spending less time together as a threesome and it was mostly me and Noel with the brain or Noel and Cassie in band and I didn't spend so much time with Cassie until she ran away from home and came to stay with me and my family for a month or so. She talked nonstop and used huge words most of my family didn't understand. My sister Natalie was about seven years old and called Cassie the headache maker. Natalie and I were close at that time. Liz and I were too once I got to high school. I'd been close with Natalie since she was born, but Liz and I fought a lot growing up being so close in age. Cassie was fun to have around for a bit, but she eventually made up with her parents and went home. Audrey and I would still sometimes say hello or pass a note here or there, remembering the fun times we had together, but Mona made Audrey her project and stole her from me. Then, once Mona realized that I moved on and found other friends in the brain, she tossed Audrey away. She'd flirt with Kenneth or Monty, who she knew she could make part of the brain if they dated her, but they weren't interested. They could see she wasn't genuine, but Spud started talking to Mona, and at some point they ended up together. I was miserable with my cousin doing what she was doing. Every step I took along the way in life, Mona went out of her way to sabotage it, and I tried and Mona went out of her way to sabotage it and tried to steal it or break it. She tried to turn my own friends and family against me. At the time, I loved her. She, was, she always made me feel like I was so important to her, well, at the same time, trying to destroy me. It was classic abusive behavior, and being that she was my twin cousin, I grew up constantly fighting it. She was my family, so I felt like I had to share everything I had with her, including my friends, yet she abused that privilege over and over. The depression over all these, all the losses and failures every day were weighing on me, and I started drinking again pretty heavily. I drank at school most of the time between classes. 
I only had a few classes and nothing I took seriously. I was still chronically suicidal and honestly believed I had a liver disease and was going to be dead in the next couple years, so I saw no reason to try hard in school. In the spring, the drama club did a play called Scapino. The director was a young businesswoman who was a bit of a scatterbrain right from the start. I tried out for the play but said I'd be interested in the role of assistant director. When the roles were assigned, I was bummed but not surprised that I didn't get a role in the play. But then I saw my name was posted as assistant director along with another freshman named Randy who was my friend from drama class with Mrs. Elsie. The thing of it was, the director never showed up again, and we were left to direct it ourselves. I ended up doing most of the work, although Randy did help a lot, but he was basically the assistant director, while I was pretty much the director of the school play. I loved it. I spent hours after school each day helping to put it together. It was a great play, but it wasn't in the budget that year, so we had crappy sets and couldn't pull much of an audience, yet that became part of the joke. Scapino was a Commedia dell'arte play, which is an Italian style of improvisational theater where the play is pre-written to have a basic plot, but the actors improvise the jokes rather than keep to an exact, an exact script. I'm pretty sure the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin was done in that style. It made Scapino especially fun to direct and be part of because the jokes changed every day. In April, my family went away on a Disney cruise with my old best friend Maddie's family, who we'd been seeing more of again. Our parents planned a trip for both our families to go to Disney for four days and a cruise to the Bahamas for three more. It was a package deal. That was my first time at Disney and still a lot of fun at 14 years old. The Bahamas were beautiful and I had my hair braided while Informer by Snow was blasting from the cruise ship. We played volleyball and were getting tan on the beach that looked like paradise with crystal blue water and palm trees everywhere. It was nice to be around Maddie again, too. He always treated me like one of the boys and was an early soulmate. When we got back from vacation, I went up to my room to find that Adam had broken in through the window next to my bed and left me a closet full of presents, which included the first James Road sign he gave me, as well as a flannel and a t-shirt of his that said that I said I wanted, plus some cans of soup and a hippie belt. I was madly in love with him, and we were happy together at that time.